You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1990 cult classic Nightbreed. I wouldn't say that it's this particular version of the film that we watch that is the cult classic. The cult around this is so much more steeped in what was left on the cutting room floor, what has found its way into the director's cut what has found its way into the cabal cut and what has found its way into all the tribes of the moons hearts and minds and the book itself so all of those things combined the movie the theatrical cut that we watched today has almost like a different group of people that revere it and it's not near as large as the people that are the the nightbreed universe and nightbreed the the cuts that happened, the cuts that had petitions signed to have them released, the cuts that are forthcoming of this film and the book itself, that entire the entire universe that is Nightbreed has a huge cult following. The theatrical version, though, not a lot of fans. I can't imagine why. <laughs> <laughs> we watched the theatrical version of this. By the way, I feel I would be remiss if I didn't say. Clive Barker's Nightbreed. Uh-huh. Because that was the marquee across the door. That was what was going to get asses in the seats. This was at a time, technically speaking, in 1989, but actually released in 1990. But this was a time in which our horror franchises were getting along in the tooth. In particular, what can we do with people's names? Like we, we, we. Stephen King can always do Stephen King stuff. Clive Barker was getting a lot of success with, well, the Hellraiser franchise. And by this time, it would have been Hellraiser three was just coming out or just out, uh, one or the other. I think it was just about to come out, but it was waning, and they were looking for the next big thing. This is not too dissimilar to the fact that, you know, you put Clive Barker's name across, you know, Lore of Illusions or whatever, and then people will be interested in that. So Clive Barker's name is a selling point. Clive Barker. Just like we had Stephen King's everything, John Carpenter's everything, and things were introduced with the name of the director or writer, Mm -hmm. or writer and director, depending on, Mm -hmm. in this case, the writer and director. And... We had been told, the horror children, the tribes of the horror moons here, had been told (laughs) from God himself, Stephen King, had said, I've seen the future of horror and his name is Clive Barker. That is a very good point. Stephen King is responsible for all of this. It's all his fault. It's all his fault always. But no, um, because we love Hellraiser around here. But Nightbreed is a film that had a lot of ambition. It had a lot of largesse around it a film coming out in 1990 with a budget of 11 million dollars shot at the pinewood studios this was to be 
the Star Wars of horror. The Star Wars of horror. Quite, uh, that's very appropriate. And if they would have taken his vision, Clive Barker's vision, and things that were shot to begin with, and heck, even some of the reshoots and figured out which really worked best, they could have cut it into two digestible films, uh, I, a la Halloween 1 and 2, let's say, even though they weren't really filmed like that, but let's pretend they were. And it would have been two very digestible horror films that would have, I wouldn't, I dare say revitalized the genre, but we would have gotten off on a much better foot with this film, for sure. Instead, we got it maligned beyond belief, beyond recognition, according to Clive Barker. Yeah, he was incredibly unhappy. Uh, I know that the editor that was working on the film left it to in protest about what the big boys at the studio were trying to do to this film to try to distill it down into something a little bit more marketable. This had a storied... Uh, uh, problems in production. Uh, so I, as much as Clive Barker had this, this idea of, I want to make the Star Wars trilogy of horror a cool statement. I'd be down for that. And I'll that's like, what he signed up for. And that's what they uh, acquiesced to. It comes across way more like what the, the Dune movie turned out to be. Yeah. Just this, vaguely reminiscent of the original work bizarrely edited and fucking long even even the theatrical cut which is the shortest version it's under two hours um just under two hours um it's still fucking it somehow manages to drag in parts while also seeming like this movie's not waiting for you to watch it. There's entire scenes that seem completely removed wholesale that would explain who a character is, why they're there, why anyone would be doing anything, what happened to this character, who where'd this person come from? All this weird dialogue that comes out to be, oh, this is what happened. My boyfriend, my new boyfriend, Curtis. <laughs> what? The last scene, this woman was single. Yeah. What's happening? We didn't see her meet this Curtis. Oh, wait, it's Decker. Decker is a whole... That is a whole movie unto itself that if I were doing this now... Because this is the other problem. This idea of let's film one big-ass fucking movie, cut it in half... And, and we'll do it. Nowadays, that wouldn't even seem weird. People, they do that all the time. No, it wouldn't seem weird. But back then, they're just like, what? A, a movie with a cliffhanger? Or we're filming the movies together and then we're splitting it up? No, no, no. We cut it down. It'll make sense, probably. But you should have done maybe a Deckard movie first. If the studio was so bonered to do a fucking slasher movie by this theatrical cut in the first place... It's mostly about Deckard just killing random people in a very cool mask. They tr- they try and force it into being that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and 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 then there's also this Nightbreed thing. So if what you should do is start off with Deckard, reveal who he is, then your next movie is about like entering the Nightbreed. So you could have your Deckard Button Man movie and just make your slasher movie, and then. Tease at the end, oh, there's going to be something else. And then you do Nightbreed. And then all this weird shit with Deckard you don't really need because he's apparently just trying to pin Boone on this whole thing. It's well, a fucking... At that point, though, it's, then it's fanfic. And then it's not Clive Barker's nothing. True, but at the same time, Clive Barker 
uh, is the architect of this. And I understand that the studio butchered this beyond recognition, but I mean, I, I, I tell you, I haven't seen this version of this film since I was a wee tot. I'd watched it once. Like, I watched it over and over and over and over and over and over again as a teen. Really? Oh, yeah. I, I, this was on heavy rotation in my friends' houses and people's basements. It was. I owned a VHS copy that got worn right out. My parents watched it. Uh, there's jokes that my uncle and father would make about Buttonhead and the whole rip off your head and shit on your neck became like a thing that other even other kids that I didn't know were Nightbreed fans said. Like, it was definitely a fan favorite. A huge really? fan favorite. Yeah. Uh, that was before we knew, because the internet didn't tell us when we were younger no. that things like this cabal cut would ever come to pass. We didn't know that there was a whole bunch of stuff on the cutting room floor. I only read so many uh, issues of like Fangoria, Rumorg. Rumorg wasn't even a thing, I don't think, when this first hit. I think Rumorg hit around 94, if I recall. Rumorg was 97. 97 okay yeah. so there was no nothing to tell us as horror movie fans except those that were that were very very plugged in or would glean news from other magazines usually magazines from overseas so being in the cave on mars that canada is and being in the cave on mars that being a horror fan is we didn't fucking know that there was anything beyond this so i still do enjoy watching this as i had over and over and over again so that's not to say that I dislike the director's cut by mm. any means. It's precious. And I can understand the big fight for the Cabal cut. Like, I really, really can. And I enjoy that. For the purposes of the show today, we watch the theatrical cut because it's not three and a half hours long. Yeah. Or two hours long. Or, you know, any. it's nice hours, and short. I think the director's cut clocks in at two, two hours, 25 minutes. Yeah. It's a chunky sit. Yeah. And then the forthcoming release will be even longer for your Lori singing enjoyment. Good Lord. I tell you, man, this movie, uh, I didn't remember. I'll tell you, watching the theatrical cut now makes it seem as though I was watching this movie while simultaneously falling asleep and waking (laughs) back up a couple of minutes later. That is the best explanation for this film ever. Yes, that's exactly what it's like. Yeah. Especially if you've seen the larger versions and know what's all missing, right? Or yeah. have a vague recollection of what's all missing. Yeah. It, watching this through end to end is a lot like you fall asleep and miss some things. Yeah. Yeah. Fall asleep, wake up, and you're like, oh, where are we? Oh, gotcha. And then you fall asleep again, and you're like, wait, fuck. Oh, shit. I guess I missed the song. Like, it's it's that type of, of reaction because I've seen the director's cut more often than i've seen this this for me was a one and done as a kid really yeah i i don't i didn't dislike it it reminded me a lot of uh a less like a far less comedic version of that movie freaks that came out if you remember that with mr t and shit like that that weird weird comedy or an actually horror version of little monsters with howie mandel yeah the little again another movie that uh, see little monsters meant a lot to me as a kid but i can't vouch for it now i don't remember i i feel that i'd like to rewatch that again just for fun um but yeah that's it's crazy to me that it was a one and done because it yeah. was just so important to me it wasn't as though I didn't like it. I didn't have it for for starters. I didn't have it on VHS. Yeah. 
Secondly, um, it I I can't remember it really impressing upon me that much. Like I, like I remember watching it, liking the creature effects, liking that there was some boobies in it because I'm the child. Uh, other than, I liked um, the violence mm-hmm. in it. Um, but I, I can, I suppose looking at it now, I can see why it wouldn't have really, the story, the way that the theatrical version is cut doesn't really do anything for me as an adult. Yeah. Like it seems like a very unfinished, there's a lot of fucking mistakes and there's a lot of goofy moments in my opinion that the director's cut sort of smooths out the rough oh, edges. Oh, big time. Yeah. Um, I remember really liking, uh, Cronenberg's character. Oh, who can? Because, well, if you're, he may not be a night breed, but if you're going to talk about who we'd hook up with for oh, a coffee or a long spaghetti dinner, a long spaghetti dinner, yeah, yeah just sipping noodles through the zipper mouth. Um, yeah, there, there's, there is, uh, I mean, that guy strikes a, a really cool silhouette and shit like that, and that you would think that that would get me. I think just the combination of. Not having it, only seeing it on TV one time. Like, I think I saw it on, like, the movie network or something. I'm cutting commercial free. Uh, and I'm uh, glad that you're an ad for the movie network. And that it made it to the movie network. Like, understanding that this movie did not do very well. Yeah, no. Like and this, this movie did not do well. And this is not one of those situations where I wonder why it didn't. I know exactly why this movie didn't do well. Look at the theatrical cut. And I could see that unless you like... Unless you specifically like horror movies, you specifically like creature effects, and you're willing to forgive some choppy uh, narrative problems and weird editing, um, you're not going to like this movie at all. And you're going to actually be a little annoyed that this was built up so much as this thing and this film was delayed and delayed and delayed uh, by over a year to try to get it ready and it cost so much money and... So film people sitting down and audience members sitting down being like, Clive Barker's Nightbreed. And then it just, it happened and it was gone. I never heard anybody talk about this movie until the fucking, the, the whispers of more footage were, was, uh, we're getting the director's cut eventually. Wow. See that it's so crazy to me because we, so many times we occupied the same universe to a certain extent, but then there's times like this where we occupied Totally different worlds, yeah. but you kind of sum it up. And unless you're a fan of horror and, and fantasy and creature effects, and then pile on top of that, me being a Clive Barker fan mm. as a, as a kid and a teen, and coming from a household of Clive Barker fans, mm. and having Clive Barker paperbacks at my disposal, thanks to my mother's and my uncle's collections, and having friends that were all about this, and that we knew it was shot partially in Canada, so that was another mm-hmm. Canadian angle we were very excited about to watch and continued. Like, from the ages of 15 to 20, this was like heavy, heavy, heavy rotation. People talked about it a lot, and like I said, quoted it a lot. So it was like such a big movie and such a big idea in our heads. Mm. And Midian, like me and my cousin wanted to go and see where the monsters go because we knew that parts of this was filmed in Alberta. So we're like, well, there must be an actual graveyard up there, right? <laughs> like, because we were at that sort of impressionable, adventurous age. Sounds like you watch this as much as like some other teens watch like Lost Boys or some shit. Yeah, no, exactly. I would definitely watch this more than I watch Lost Boys. Yeah, but 
it was it was i can see where it would also be super disappointing even though i didn't articulate this as a young horror fan the hero quote-unquote the slasher they were trying to build in buttonhead and cronenberg's character and decker is is fucking unlikable he's a horrible human being he's not a misunderstood beast like michael myers who is yes pure evil but also Mm -hmm. i feel badly for him or like jason who everyone is the feeling badly for him is built into his character Mm -hmm. you don't feel bad for decker you don't at all and at the end it's sort of like oh shit you don't want this guy to live it's yeah. the opposite thing you're trying to do with a horror slasher hero because you want them to sit back up. Decker's not someone that you want to sit back up. No, and and it really, it, it, I suppose we'll get into when this film ends, uh, that being specifically reshot, interestingly enough, because of poor audience reaction. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Speaking of poor audience reaction. Uh-oh. I have redone my typical books, so I have. Uh, I'm not. I don't have poor audience reaction. In fact, I'm enjoying a little bit more increased audience reaction, and it's lovely on my YouTube channel, Typical Books. I'm doing some more book reviews. I got a new camera, so I'm playing with that, and that's really. You know, I'm a dabbler. I'm definitely a dabbler, mm. so I'm back into dabbling with YouTube. Mm. You did. You did a Typical Books episode, not the last one. The last one you were. You were. You were. It was kind of more of a, a, a. This is what I'm reading. Yeah, there was a bit of a TBN. And, I talked about Stephen King's the, the elevation. Stephen, the elevation, but you did one for a book previously. It was like a spooky ghost book. Yeah, the Carol Haunt. That's right. And when I saw that, I was that was I was like, ooh, that looks like something that I even might want to read. I can lend it to you. This is why I like having you as my friend. <laughs> Coming up next, we have a well, we I. Have you a do. Book this is called all Dead Air. That uh, Chris had. I thought I had it handy. It's over there. Uh, <laughs> it's a Matthew M. Bartlett book, but yeah. And he recommended it not only because of the subject matter. And I'll get into that in the video. It's fucking enjoyable, but it's called Dead Air, and it's in celebration of, of this show of us. So that's Ooh. sort of a fun read. So yeah, tune into Typical Books YouTube. You can and you find have it on a new, Twitter. You have a new camera. Yeah. And what I like about this new camera is it frames you and, you know, you can see like your cool couch and your little bric-a-brac in the back and stuff like that. It just looks more, you've like instantly just looked way more professional, even though all you've done is just shot in a different place and you've done the exact same thing. And using a bit more of my expertise instead of being lazy about it and being like, well, I could get all this gear together and do this right. Or I could just pop up my phone like everyone else does and make a YouTube video that's crappy. Uh, I just put a little bit more of my own expertise into it. But hey, that'll translate to the show. Someday, Thomas may get his wish and get a live streaming dead air video. Yeah, you, you I never I believe it was know. him that mentioned it. It was somebody, uh, maybe Thomas, maybe somebody who's who said, like, I want, I want to see you guys yeah. review the movie. I'm like, okay. That would be um, boring. Yeah, I know. I was yeah. like, I guess I'll have to fucking shower before I come here or something. Probably. Uh, yeah, I'll have to brush my hair. I know. We'll have to like get in all the resolutions on our faces and shit. See how hideous and ancient we are. Well, well they'll get to see that we do just drink water. That we're not sitting here cracking beers. and. Uh, what you drinking there, Lids? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, we're just d- drinking waters from straws. We are so boring. <laughs> but it would, I guess it would be fun. And we have a good camera to do that. So True. we could. We could. And have good audio for that, too. 
It suddenly got dark in here. Yeah, I like it. It's mm-hmm. be- I'm, I'm becoming more powerful, I feel. Mm-hmm. We're getting closer to summertime and to Stephen King of Palooza. Uh, so that's kind of refreshing. So if you hear an extra spring in our step via our voices, it's probably because there's sunlight in Canada for once. I don't like it. No. No, not only that, but when I was walking here, I fucking... The, the, the hill to get up here was way too muddy. And so I had no, I had a choice to go through it and try to find the least muddy way to go. And I did pretty good. I traversed a, a beam, very cat-like, and I didn't get any muddy uh, shoes. But then when I got to the top, I was like, well, there's no way around this. So I need to like step through the mud. And I did. Almost fell, but I didn't. And then I had to go find the remains of like a dirty snowbank and like wash the mud off my fucking shoes. Welcome to Canada. I was so annoyed. I was like, fuck this. That's why I hardly walk through the back because it's horrible. I just stick to sidewalks in this in this weather because it is mucky and gross. I could have just gone right to your backyard. And, yeah. and and just been like, I'm in your yard. There's double mud in my backyard for some reason. Because oh, okay. everything kind of dips down and creates like a lens of, of dirt and mud and muck. It's gross. It's really gross. <laughs> Welcome to our new podcast where we just talk about <laughs> all the mud everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. It is the season. <laughs> True. But it's also the season to talk about Nightbreed. What's this movie even about anyways, Lydia? It is about where the monsters go. It's. You know, part and parcel, hand in hand with the film that we just did, where we talked about digging up the marrow, where the monsters go underground to hide. Mm-hmm. And this is where generations of supernatural beasts, where it was angled in digging up the marrow that these were natural humans that were shunned by society. Who's to say they weren't supernatural to a certain extent? And who's to say that all of these beasts, the night breed, the tribes of the moon, who's to say that not all of them are supernatural? Some of them could be absolutely human. Like your little pal with the dog in night breed who you think is a pervert. The big old perv. You've, you've posited he's a <laughs> pervert. So I guess when you ask the question, what is this movie even about anyway? I, I think you're really asking... Which of the Nightbreed would you bang? Yeah, that's the question. <laughs> the question that I want to know is which Nightbreed character would you have sex with? Because I've been thinking about it for two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> two weeks and a day, at least, because you came up with it when we recorded. Oh, my. Well, I, we had a little conversation pre-tape, so I'm going to plug in our little conversation about which Nightbreed would you bang. <laughs> yeah. Scene missing. The biggest perv of all the Cenobites. You think so? Oh, yeah. Like, he has, like, that greased up, gross, bloated Marlon Brando type look to him. Sticking his buttered finger. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's butterball to me. Butterball. Butterball. So you figure that the tattooed nightbreed is as much of a pervert as butterball? I don't know if he's much as much of a pervert as butterball. But he is definitely... Butterball is a pervert in the way in which he's sitting there... Like rubbing his belly, watching like some pathetic like cam show where he's and he's always the guy, no matter what cam show is going on, he's always just like, let me see your feet. (laughs) He's always that guy, even if it's like some Instagram girl on the Internet who like shows pictures of like retro games he slides into her dms like yeah i have some pictures of your feet i'll pay you i think and butterball doesn't like have any lines 
And that's because he's too busy thinking about all the stuff he's going to say to cam girls. Now, this other dude from Nightbreed, he's the type of pervert that you come to his house. Like, he'll, he'll, he probably has a job. He probably, like, works in a bank or some sort of, like, middle ground insurance guy. Um, but then he, like, gets home and, like, takes off his shoes and socks and then takes off his shirt and he's got, like, the tattoos and shit. And then he, like, just sits there with, like, his little dog. And he probably has, like, weird fetishes that, like, are so tangentially connected to sex that it's you can't even call it a fetish really because you're just like do you come to this it's weird that's the type of pervert that guy is and probably it would like both of them here's the thing both of them super up for orgies so i think that they're both equal perverts just different kinds of perverts the only nightbreed that strikes me perverted is peliquin he's the only one that is overtly sexual which which one's that peliquin yeah with the tendrils it's meat he's meat Oh, got you. Yeah. I don't know if he's necessarily. He could. I don't think he's sexual. He is a bit rapey, but they all kind of are. Even when they're just like, I'm just like joking around. I was like, you don't straddle someone who's unconscious on the ground. What about the one that takes blood and rubs it on her nipples? Yeah, that's hot. That's well, perverted. It's very perverted, though. Okay. You're right. <laughs> which gets me to my big question: is like, which nightbreed would you want to fuck the most? I was going to go with Porcupine Lady because she's the most sexual, overtly sexual, mm-hmm. which is part of her, like, um, it's part of her attack method, apparently. She's like, I know I have poisonous quills and I could throw them at you and kill you, but first I gotta, like, get you all Seduce you, you first. Seduce, yeah. seduce you Well, Rachel's bit. pretty sexy, too. She has to be naked to do her thing. Yeah, she is sexy. Mm-hmm. And she, yeah, very, very sexy. And then there's just like nipple blood lady. I would like to think that she probably eats blood via nipple. That's probably what it is. It's not like I'm rubbing my nipples. It's I'm eating right now. Oh, so you don't think it's a sexual thing at all? She's not being perverted. She's. Uh... It's not necessarily sexual to touch your own breasts. I touch my breasts all the time. It's not always sexual. It, yeah, and you could think of it as a chest. I mean, people touch their chests all the time, and maybe she consumes blood through her chest. Yeah, like the little nipples, like yang 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 yang. It's like that. Could be okay. Yeah. Okay. Which nightbreed would you bang? The porcupine lady. Okay, I think. yeah, that's what I thought going yeah. into it. Okay. Yeah. No, I still really haven't got a choice here. Hey, 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 Lids, what are you afraid of? <laughs> yeah, right. What are you afraid of? Are you afraid, like, like Big Barker's going to come down on you for, like, saying his characters are sexualized? Just fucking say, say any name. No, because none of them are really interesting to me. The yeah. only one that's the most interesting to me, because I want to ask, why is he so devout as Kinski? Like, first he's holding Boone in the graveyard so that Peliquin can eat him, but then he's not, because then he's saying, no, it's against the law. And then he's, at the end, really, like, menstruating to Baphomet, but he also seems to be, like, kind of a badass, but he's also very devout. Like, what's his deal? I'd like to sit down and have a coffee with Kinski. I don't want to sleep with any of them, but I would sit down and have a coffee with Kinski. So you want to mind fuck him? I'll go with that. No! Okay. It's a mind fuck. No, it's not. It's you can get the same amount of stimulation intellectually from somebody as you can physically. That oh, is completely. That's very true. Okay, so I'll say that it would be a very stimulating conversation. Give it me probably that. would be. There yeah. you go. Okay, there. 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 I'd like to sit down and have a coffee with Kinski. <laughs> I'll splice this into the show later. <laughs> yeah. Scene missing. 
So there you have it. I raise a lot of excellent and fair points. You forgot what you said, don't, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, I did. But it doesn't matter because we're living in the now, Lids. We are not tribes of the moon. We are tribes of the now. Tribes of the now. So what is this movie even about anyway? Midian doesn't exist. Monsters don't exist. But murder does, Wes. It, it does. And if you're from the natural world, you're meat. Meat. It's weird. You know, the one thing about these Nightbreed characters that I think is startling, perhaps, is that they're all kind of dicks. They're, they're, some of them are more mystical and neutral, but for the most part, they're, all, like, they're very down to want to eat people and bite people and kill people, uh, particularly when you invade their space, but also seemingly for no reason. And once you're down there... They're going to act fucking psycho. I'd have to say that their psychopathy and their bloodlust and cannibalism or whatever it is that people want to peg on them. Because I am here as a friend of Nightbreed, obviously. So if you're <laughs> listening, guys, and you can tell me where the monsters go. I know that there's a Midian, too. You can just give me a ring. Um, draw me a line. And... I'd have to say that just like there's many ways to kill different Nightbreed because they're all different. If you think of all the mythologies that you've ever heard of any monster and what the things that kill them, what their weaknesses, what their strengths are, the Nightbreed are very similar. Some of them do live on blood, the flesh of man or one another, and some of them don't. Like Rachel and Babette are pretty pretty benign, really. Unless Babette grows up to be the eater of worlds. Well, she very well could. She could. I mean, she does kind of look like uh, Brundlefly when she gets out in the daylight. She does. It's not her fault, though. <laughs> if you keep her in the dark, she'd probably stay really nice, and she probably would never hurt a person. Maybe not. Um, but some of them, yeah, I, do, I, I get it. They are dicks, but they're also oppressed for their entire lives and their generations. True. And also, they were numerous. They were um, allowed to live above ground, avoiding the sunlight, even though some of them can go out in the daylight. Because uh, the nightbreed seems to be a catch-all term for the various survivors from various tribes that used to inhabit the world. It's very much the type of stuff that Guillermo del Toro is always talking about about monsters and 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 how humans have essentially eradicated them uh to the point in which they are all on the brink of extinction and so the the this is the, the same thing about who's the true monsters here because the ones that really are doing the most damage are just normal humans which the nightbreed specifically refer to as natural they are from they are natural people from the natural world mm-hmm. this is this is not we are not monsters. The Nightbreed very specifically are, we are monsters. We are not the norm. We, uh, so there is no direct philosophy coming from the Nightbreed themselves, only through action of the humans. It's, it's more, um, sophisticated to show as opposed to tell. So. Mm-hmm. This uh, shows depth of hand that Clive Barker has with his storytelling. Oh, completely. And reading the book brings it into a whole new light where you do have sympathy for them, not in that 
you not not overpowered with sympathy though where you feel that they should be the rightful owners of this land above where half them can't even live and that we've usurped anything specifically from them aside from their livelihood that by the monsters referring to us as natural there's an an unspoken sort of understanding that we inhabit this upper natural world and they are the denizens of the lower and unnatural world and that that's not a power distance necessarily they're two different worlds Mm -hmm. entirely so i i think that reading the book and understanding the story so much on a deeper level is another way that people can really dislike the theatrical cut because it whitewashes a whole lot of that away and you're kind of left with these little threads of the larger story and of course you get that a lot more of that unfolded in the longer versions which make them so much more valuable and fascinating yes but if you if you already know that it still makes the theatrical cut an enjoyable romp i think you get to see all your favorite monsters and I really enjoy that. And knowing the story behind a lot of it and understanding the prophecy of Cabal and understanding the reason for Midian and the building of Midian, it, it does retain its richness. So I do wonder with somebody who's coming into this and knows nothing about the story, do they? is it really that big of a head scratcher to follow this? I am going to put myself on a limb here and say yes. Yes, okay. I think that, Jesus Christ, like, like the things that are at a remedial reading level are the themes in which the film are talking about. You, it is the, it is the classic nocturnal versus diurnal world. That's what the story is. <laughs> this is about what humans have done, uh, in the name of, uh, Status quo. Yeah, I was just going to say maintaining the status quo, and and beating back those that are different. There is there is even in the theatrical cut, uh, this idea of humans becoming envious of the abilities that the nightbreed had, and what do humans do that they are envious of? They destroy them. I mean, so there is they are hammering you in the head with certain aspects of this film. However, there are other fundamentally fucked up things about this story that don't make a lick of sense to the casual viewer. I mean, for fuck's sake, let's take out the fact that Deckard's motivations are very cryptic. You can posit what he's doing, but to the extent in which he's doing it, this police chief who's just a ragehead about this idea that there's an undead person. The the weirdest reaction. That was the greatest. He's explosive. Yeah, and to and 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 then finally, this at the very center of this nocturnal world, you have a fucking Final Fantasy summon in the basement that and and that is a level of essentially living God that exists underneath this 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 civilization and you have berserkers and you have all these twists and turns so there's all this kinds of shit and there's like rules that have never been explained because we're just supposed to intrinsically know because apparently this character told Boone all about it don't you worry and I was like is he lying that's never <laughs> happened um so so 
that so I, I, there's just a lot of information that is fixed uh, with the director's cut, and then I suppose with the Cabal cut or or th- this new cut coming out that's three and a half hours long. I will say that if you can't tell a story in two and a half hours, fucking one more draft dog. But, Considering that this is a novella that they base this on. Cabal's not very long. Okay, yeah. Dune, yes, they malign Dune to a certain extent. I still find the original Dune enjoyable. The TV movie's enjoyable to a certain extent, but I like the Sting and Agent Dale Cooper version. Oh, I love I love the Sting. Yeah. Sting and Dune. Like, I don't want anyone to think I don't like Dune. Oh, yeah. I, <laughs> let's get it really clear. We both really like Dune. Yeah. But Dune was a massive doorstop of a book it yeah. was huge and it was a lot of lore to distill a mm-hmm, lot mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. i could see that but if you would have given clyde barker the latitude that you gave lynch with dune then this story could have been told entirely without having to snip things back in and cut and paste it later on i i wouldn't mind a redo i, I wish clyde barker could get a like a adrenaline shot or something and I have a redo. I really do feel like he is trying to tape a, a, a vase together. Like at this yeah. point, the constantly releasing new versions of this film, when what you have to really admit is you tried your best and we you didn't get it right. And the studio fucked with it and it's just a mess. So yeah, it's it, like, if we talk about films that should be probably remade, a film like this could probably use it because you just see a lot of wasted potential, even though there's things that I wouldn't want to lose. Like, oh, I, 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 exactly. I, I was just going to say it is. There are so many fantastic characters, such great acting mm-hmm. and such great sets. And it is just so beautiful of a film. It really is. I think of watching this movie on mute for the casual viewer. You'd probably be able to build mm-hmm. more stories on your own. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and I think that when you are, when you have something like Nightbreed, where you see the high production value, and believe me, the even the theatrical version, they have uh, this film has been cleaned up beautifully. It looks fantastic. Yeah, it, there, there is, and and so when you're watching it, you just you know you're just like why like why isn't this super cool like this could be so much better but and not and, and again like i'm not going to say that, that that the theatrical cut is unwatchable i'm just saying that i get why it tanked this is not yeah. like a carpenter's thing where i where i sit there and i think about it sometimes for an extended period of time and you I want try to shout out your windows what is wrong with you people like what but, like, happened i was such a huge fan of this surrounded by huge fans of this but so, i get it i still do get that's it. that's a good point because how old would you have been 90 so you would have been fucking young like when 15 this, yeah so you would have been like a pretty good age because there's a i was trying to think about what weird movie did i watch there was a lot of movie films in my life that i watched over and over again some films wouldn't surprise anybody jaws evil dead these were films that were on a massive fucking repeat for me but i'm trying to think about what would be the film that keeps coming up that i really liked as a kid that i watched over and over and over again was stargate mm-hmm. that that was like a weird movie that when i go back and i've watched it as an adult it's not good it's it's cool it's a cool concept it's got aliens and it's mixed in egypt and shit like that 
neat stuff. And I know that it spawned a, a TV shows that became very popular, but I've never seen them. But um, the film was something that was so like, it was such a flash in the pan. Like here's Stargate. And they don't, do that with that much fanfare anymore like we're here's like this weird sci-fi movie and there's toys and there's there's like fucking t-shirts and stuff like that and then it goes away like i feel like it's weird to me that like nightbreed never got like did it get it like a mcdonald's happy meal i don't i will never get that but do you like like did it get like ken did kenner ever release like some nightbreed i don't know because i didn't pay attention to stuff like that see i definitely did i was that kid right i I watched movies and it lived as a movie and if there was a book and i'd often be like is there a book for this Mm -hmm. and if there was a book i would be happy but i never looked for like toys and coasters and clothing or lunch boxes did you did you ever get the the novelizations of the movies like the ones no, I definitely viewed novelizations of films as sort of like riding on the coattails of, and I know that there's no shame in writing novelizations, and I myself would would like to write novelizations, and I understand the huge lines of really rich writing that happens in novelizations, but when I went into the used bookstores as a kid, it's just not something I was interested in, because I was interested in the film, or the sequel as a film, or the screenplay, I would have bought that. But I wanted, like, the primary source material. Prepare to be jealous about all my weird old horror movie novelizations that I have. Yeah, yeah. Aliens. It's not really, you know, that's all I have. <laughs> no, and there are a lot of really cool ones. Really, really cool ones. And it's mm. great money. It's, a, it's great money if you can get it. I was really only wondering if, like, maybe somewhere you would, like, have sniffed out the novelization of, like, 1978's Halloween from back in the day. No. Yeah. No. No. Because that just seems, like, weird to me. Like, is this somebody that got the movie and grabbed a pen and paper and just started, like, jotting down set directions so they could make it into a book? No, it would have been... Novelizations are usually sanctioned by the, the studio to get it. So, like, I would assume that they were just, like... We have this movie coming out. Make a novelization of it. And they do. They do. They propose to authors, but then some authors do write novelizations and then go to the the studio with them. Yeah. It works both ways. More often, though, it's like you're envisioning. They get an author and make them write it. Yeah. It's like, you there. I was pointing to the dog. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, no. So, no, that wasn't a thing. Like, and pretty much any like consumerism attached to a film or book, beyond the film or book itself, I'm generally not interested in just by nature consumerism just fucking makes me horny almost as horny as some of these nightbird characters we have talked about the film entirely but we'll give like a quick speed through of boone and laurie they're a couple boone has a doctor because he's crazy his doctor's name is decker philip k decker as it stands not curtis no not curtis at all his name's not (laughs) curtis at all and Boone's having bad dreams, and he goes to his doctor, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happens between then and there in the director's cut that is of great importance. But Decker gives him, like, hallucinogens. He does, and he gets hit by a truck. You wonder the one thing that I've noticed about the beginning of this film is the fact that both Laurie and Boone have, like, the quintessential 
early 90s, late 80s apartments, like the studio apartments. Like, I'm surprised you don't get to them via elevator. There's there's a lack of neon and people playing saxophones. Yeah, true. But, like, look, go look at the, a studio apartment that is in Hellraiser 3 and look at Lori's apartment. I, it's like the same fucking. <laughs> and it's when reading the book, it didn't like strike me as odd. But watching the movie, even the first time I watched the movie, I was like, no one lives like this. What do these people do? <laughs> I know. Are they all architects? Yeah, all architects and shit. Yeah, I, I was like, the places look expensive. But once, <laughs> once Boone gets hit by this truck, doesn't die. We don't even know how severely he got hit by the truck, but let's assume not that severely because he hasn't died just yet. And he encounters this guy who is muttering about Medea. I'm sorry. Meridian. It's like, to me, I'm like, oh my God, this is like where I wanted to go since I was 15. Midian. 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 He's muttering about Midian. That's fun to say. Narcissi um, is going to prove his deference to Boone, who he believes is a, a, a messenger, a guide, even though uh, he already knows how to get there. And Boone doesn't, and he just assumes it's a test. But he's probably on something. Scene missing. <laughs> Scene missing, don't worry about it. Because yeah. he's just going to like cut his part of his face off and then offer it to Boone. Like, see, I did, I did the thing. That character is going to vanish and then just come back as a nightbreed. Scene missing. Scene missing. Um, Once Boone gets to this graveyard, you love this graveyard. I love this graveyard. And it's not only that I wanted to go there to be where the monsters go as a child um, and see the nightbreed for my own self. Uh, I just liked graveyards as well. And it's a pretty fucking rocking graveyard it's got moss it's got old things it's got demons it's oh a lot God. of statues it's got a lot of statues yeah. it's beautiful and it's out in the middle of fucking nowhere so you can do what thou wilt and no police will harass you i think the cops kind of stay away from this graveyard as it is but it is north of athabasca past i wrote down the directions <laughs> <laughs> just in case we want to take a trip east of peace river in dwyer it's next to dwyer and it's very close. It's in the district of Sheer Rock. It's a Sheer Rock police. Um, but Dwyer doesn't exist in Alberta. Peace River does, but it's three and a half hours away from Athabasca. So that could describe why Boone is so tired when he gets there. And it's nightfall when he gets there. And he has a little snooze. And he gets woke up by a puppy. Uh, I like that there are like a, there's a puppy and a kitty at the very least. The Nightbreed have pets. They do. Very yeah. cute pets. I don't know if like that kitten survived the onslaught at the end, but let's assume yes. Um, uh, in my cut, they just showed the little kittens okay at the end. Oh, okay. okay. That's how okay. I like to do it. It's like the gate, too, where like the hamster comes out of the casket. You're like, oh, even the hamster survived. Cool. Uh- <laughs> but yeah, he gets um, attacked, basically, by Kinski and Pelican. Pelican is raving about how he's meat because he's natural and it's his own fault for walking in the graveyard. This is where, this is our realm, right? Mm-hmm. So they chase him around the graveyard in the most muddy dream sequence type fucking running ever. They are barely running and it's hilarious to me. They are barely running, but this is just like at the very beginning of this film where it becomes an Andrew Lloyd Webber play and you have all of these night be first of all the most bizarre title sequence ever that just shows like scenes from the movie within the lettering and you're just like 
whose idea was this? And then you have these characters, the camera really tight on them, and they're just like, like just like fucking like moving their <laughs> arms. The and and I, I was just like, they're just running in place. Like they're not. That's what it looks like. Going so anywhere, just not directed very well. This and, particular and, scene, and the same thing when Boone's staggering around in the street in front of the truck, it doesn't really look like he's on a street or moving anywhere. Mm-hmm. And then this scene too, I was like, I don't know what it is about any sort of movement people have to run and you just i it might be the fact that they had to reshoot so much stuff partially i think that it's a space constraint because as soon as you take a step back to really catch the idea that these people are running through space from point a to point b you would see the set or you would see something that's mm-hmm. not the graveyard most right? of the stuff was shot on pinewood though. yeah the star wars st- st- studio stages probably not set up well enough where they could have blocked things properly. That's what I'm guessing, but it's just, it's comical, unfortunately. It it is comical, but that doesn't really ruin anything for me because when it comes to that type of cinematography, you know, you you can just sort of like laugh at it a little bit and just move on. It doesn't, again, my problems with the theatrical cut are all narrative. It's not, Oh yeah. it's not really anything else. Like I think everyone's acting is, either excellent or to serviceable like it runs the gamut but like well the police chief where you would what you would you would laugh at his performance he's acting his ass off like he's yeah. doing a very good job it's just we don't know where the, the fuck he's coming there's from. no context yeah. for any of it yeah and nobody else is acting like that so you don't know i mean are they doing a i'm the chief of police and i'm tough as nails and this is my town and i don't want freaks here and they do allude basically to some like a base level racism like that's also on a very remedial reading level up to the point in which they have like one of the night breed getting beaten by police while a black detective kind of has to like look down and wonder like feet you can see the conflict in his face but when he is reached for him he pulls his foot away and it's like oh this is like an uncle tom thing where it's just like as long as they're not as long as these cops aren't beating me so there's a lot of like shit with racism going on here and i guess that's what they're but i've never heard anyone be racist towards or prejudiced towards a zombie or an undead or a nightbreed because he doesn't know what these things are all he knows is that boone has no pulse a pulse he'll lose when he gets lit (laughs) the other living fuck up like he's michael myers it is a lot like michael myers death scene he goes running out of the graveyard and peliquin and kinski stop and they say something smells natural or something to that effect and it's not that they can't leave the graveyard and it's not that it's boone that they're afraid of there's something out in the field and then we realize what it is it's all the cops it's like a fucking battalion Mm -hmm. and they shoot the shit out of Boone, and it's not only like they probably wouldn't have, except that his doctor's there, and his doctor yeah. is playing this two-faced bullcrap because he's telling the cops like Boone's a danger and telling Boone it's okay, just listen to me, they won't hurt you. And then he goes to him and he says like, "Yes, I believe you. There are monsters here. I totally." And you didn't kill anyone. You're right. It's true. You're you're yeah. fine. You're innocent. And then yells, "He's got a gun!" So he gets shot by the cops. So you know the doctor, and from the beginning you sort of had a weird feeling about the doctor, and seen missing it turns out that he is not on boone's side at all no he is in fact a a horrible vicious serial killer who seems to target families there has been a series of killings over a few months and 
six, was it six families over 10 months or, or something eight like families that? Or eight, but eight, yeah, and there was more because it was a yeah. trail of dead leading to Alberta. But holy crap. Um, <laughs> uh, but this is where Deckard's motivations become fucking just confusing as shit to me because is the, the okay he's clearly trying to pin the murders on Boone Boone has been having he's a convenient fall guy he's a convenient fall guy but that only works if he's planning on stopping the killings yeah yeah it doesn't or moving soon or doing, so somewhere else doing anything so and and there's no indication that the heat is on like no one has the slightest idea that Deckard is the person committing these murders. There's there's no indication that there would be any evidence linking him to this whatsoever. He's not. A, he is a well respected psychiatrist. People, the police listen to him. People listen to him. Boone listens to him. And so, all right, what to what end would you blame Boone on this? Unless you were specifically trying to kill the Nightbreed. Which seems to be what he... Which he sort, of, he sort of drops a line later. But then you're thinking, is he just that warped that he's thinking of the families he killed those breeders? Or is he um, completely like misguided in that he thought those people he killed were Nightbreed? But they weren't? Like no, It's just it's, so very confusing it, it makes in this no sense. version. And he seems to kill... He seems to... At first, it's I target families because I don't like breeders. He doesn't like this idea of people with traditional families. For some reason that bothers him. We don't know why. Mm-hmm. But then he is killing indiscriminately. He kills single people, old people, young people, anybody. Like you said, it's a swath uh, of dead leading towards Vancouver. <laughs> he does. No, and he he has gone berserk in a certain way. Or mm-hmm. is that all part of his giant plan that we don't know? Who knows? He looks cool. He does look fucking and, cool. And, and oh, Cronenberg looks cool. Buttonhead mask or not. Yeah. And by the way, for those of you that we keep saying Cronenberg, I mean, I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast knows, but David Cronenberg, a very famous director who's done some landmark horror films, is acting in the role of the serial killer. It's weird. He does act on occasion, but this is... Is this his biggest role he's I'd ever done? I'd have to say. I'd have to say because anything else it's not like he occupies a lot of screen time in this. I, because it's not only that it's not only like is this is this um cronenberg's biggest acting role because most of the other films that i know him from it's just it's a scene it's a scene in and out yeah uh usually when he's like friends with the directors and shit like that seems like acting is something that he likes to dabble in this on the other hand is like you said a full fucking character he's Throughout the entire film, he's the last character you see. In a way, this is his fucking movie. Yeah, yeah. And if they're trying to position this as a slasher film, he is the hero. They might as well just call it Buttonhead. True. I would watch a fucking movie named Buttonhead, and especially if he looked like this. And not only that, but as the villain, he is the one driving the action. He drives every single plot point in this movie. Yeah. Boone, our protagonist, really is just reactionary. And that's not narratively, uh, structurally bad. That's just, again, to emphasize the fact that, like, David Cronenberg, character of Deckard, 
is this movie. Like, yeah. it, it does not function at all without his character. Yeah, and they they cast him very well. I don't know oh, how yeah, that he came does, about, but yeah, it'd be an interesting fantastic story. job. But he, yeah, he does a really good job. He plays this um, very distracted, very clinical uh, psychologist that, like, when you he is speaking very flatly, it seems to fit the character. And he's playing this game, again, where he wants to get Boone. And he does, because Boone dies, uh, dies like a frog, just sort of crippled on the ground, and has been shot, I don't know, what would you say, 15, 20 times? Yeah. yeah. And... But he is not going to stay dead because... He was bit. He was bit. By Pelican when he was chasing him through the cemetery, basically. Cemetery, which maybe is just not very big. That's why they can't run full speed or convincingly. Or that whatever. could be it. A lot of undergrowth. Yeah. I know. This is about the time when we were watching that I started joking about the uh, prophecy that isn't mentioned until the very end. But, I mean, whatever. Um, it's like Pelican didn't know how this was going to all fucking go down, but... Yeah. yeah. He's like, listen, I only look at this part of the tapestry. I never turn my head. <laughs> I never turn my head to this side. Yeah. I like, it's like, I got neck problems. I like to look left. I don't like to look right. Yeah. <laughs> my God. So he, uh, Boone comes back to life. He does. And he is going to be whisked. Scene missing. Whisked Scene away missing. by our friend. Uh, what was it, Narcissus? Narcissus. Not, but not really. But because, not, no, we don't see that happen. We don't see that happen. Poof, he's and, back in Midian. And we we only know that because this person who apparently died or wanted to die or whatever, um, who will also get, uh, min, who also get, like, Decker will steal his secrets when he was vulnerable and, and dying. I'm like, what? Scene missing. Like, again, another scene fucking missing. Yeah. And, and it's now him getting... Uh, Boone getting inducted to this thing. Narcissus is, is is basically like I've been here for fucking. so scene missing. Flash forward. Flash forward, and apparently all the rules have been t- spoken to to Boone, and he basically just has to commit himself to this uh, place of darkness, the night breed themselves, um, and someone needs to vouch for him. Kinski does. Kinski has, and he's apparently taught him all he needs to know about the law. Scene missing. Yeah. Uh, and, and and this is a point in which you genuinely feel like I fell asleep for 15 fucking minutes. Yeah. yeah. And he's in and 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 this is also where the 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 worst part about this editing is nothing feels earned. He it especially when Boone starts like instantaneously breaking rules, barking orders at people. Like you've been here for five minutes, dude. Yeah. And also BT dubs, Lori is right on his fucking tail. Yeah. She has shown up at a bar looking for Midian and they're like, you and everybody else. There's been a news crew up there and everything. Like everyone's going to see Midian and she has a little breakdown in the bathroom because is it men or money? Asks her new friend, Cheryl Ann. Yeah, so uh, Shannon is going to become her gal pal. Yeah, Shirley is actually one of my favorite little characters because she doesn't last very long. No, no, no. So the, the, the nice thing when Lynn is drinking and carrying on with Lori, she <laughs> she eventually uh, gets a boyfriend. Yes, Curtis. Serena actually ends up wanting to meet up with Curtis, her new boyfriend, the next day. Mm-hmm. The worst part, though, is that her uh, Susie's new boyfriend, Curtis, 
is David Cronenberg's character Deckard, who gave her a fake name and a fake job. Yeah. Even though the Shirley, Cheryl Ann, Serena, Susie, uh, she calls herself Shirley like twice in this very <laughs> short time that this person lives in this film. She shows up at the bar, they have a drink, they have gal pal talk, they wake up in the morning hungover, eat raw eggs or whatever the fuck for their hangover, and then they go out to the graveyard together and Cheryl Ann dies. So we don't get to see her very long, but somehow in this very short time that she's in this film, she refers to herself as Shirley twice. When yeah. her name is Sher- Cheryl Ann. Yeah. And and um uh Lori will get her name wrong and uh Curtis Deckard, Philip Deckard, David Cronenberg himself, is just gonna kill her. And and again, I was like, did we just need another body here? I don't understand why this character is present. They could have cut her out entirely. If they're looking to make some room for some actual story in here, they could have cut Shirley Cheryl Ann out of it entirely. Yeah, it, it, it makes literally no difference. But um, Laurie's going to ingratiate herself to the Nightbreed instantaneously because she is going to save one of their children, uh, Brundlefly's life. Yeah, but Bet likes to play outside, and she's she shouldn't because it does horrible things to her. It turns her into sort of like a wolf cub that's melting or something it, with a fly head. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, it is weird. It's it's very gross. I would never touch it. If someone was, if Rachel came to me and said, as beautiful as she is, if she said, "Could you like touch that?" I'd be like, "No." But this is where Lori proves, like, without even understanding what she's doing that she could live entirely with Boone as he is because she's not afraid of this sort of thing she's concerned if anything she's concerned for Babette from the get-go but then right away that turns into a pawn because she's like I saved her life so you do something for me I want to see Boone so it's tit for tat right you owe me now because I saved Babette which is sort of a dick move I think on Laurie's part but whatever yeah it's a dick move and again they're they're making it's like Babette belongs to you now, as is our law. Again, they keep alluding to these laws, and I feel as though in any given situation, if they needed characters from the Nightbreed world to act any certain way, they would just insert a law that says, well, why don't they just kill her? Laws prevent it. Well, well, uh, why does Lori have one over on them? It's not enough that she rescued one of them. Now let's say one of the laws, this character belongs to her. It's a life debt type thing. I'm like, I guess... You don't need it. Anyways, so that's like, that's again, like just being like overly critical uh, for no reason other than the fact that it fucking bothers me. But it doesn't matter because we're going to get shown a whole new world. Oh, God. Yeah, it is a whole new world. It's a lot like the Goblin Market from Hellboy. You will understand how I, I'd like to think that. Del Toro's watched this and created Goblin Market. The, the better version this, of it. Yeah. This this looks like a cross between the market from Hellboy Two and like the tree houses from that Robin Williams Robin uh, Peter Pan movie. That's what it really reminds. Part, me it of. reminds me a little bit of like Border Town Two. Yeah, Border Town. Who yeah. runs it? Run Border Town. <laughs> Damn Master right. Blaster. <laughs> and who actually kind of looks like he'd be right at home in Midian. I think that Master Blaster, it's the crossover people have been waiting for. Oh my God, me included. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, we could do a Master Blaster. You could ride on my shoulders. Oh my God. <laughs> that would be perfect. 
I just wear a big fucking can on my head. It'd be great. Um, <laughs> we get to see a lot of creatures mm-hmm. in this city, this underground city. And what I like the most about this is they don't recycle too harshly either. We've already seen a lot of characters thanks to the Andrew Lloyd Webber intro that you so aptly <laughs> coined. And then quite a few snippets here and there of life underground. And then here we get a grand tour of underground. And later on at the end, there's a lot more even. We see a whole different, and we'd like to see more of what we've seen in this little tour at the end, but there's even some breed that we never see again. And plus, 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 we see breed that aren't even humanoid whatsoever in this sort of tour. And you would think that these things would scare Lori, but she just keeps pressing on to go and see Boone. And as I said earlier, it was a bit of a dick move, her using Babette as a pawn, but it is all about the dick. She wants her boyfriend back. She does. And she doesn't care because he has a pretty good deal in terms of the night breed. Mm-hmm. He is the hunkiest night breed that you could possibly get. It was like when they did that fucking uh, Beauty and the Beast movie a couple of years ago where like the Beast was just like some dude with a facial tattoo and he was like super ripped and shit and you're just and and he's like oh don't look at me i'm hideous and i'm just like oh my god this guy is so hot i'd fuck him and and you're trying to tell me that this is your disfigured monstrous guy or like you know when they really cheap out speaking of andrew Lloyd weber when they really cheap out on what the family opera looks like and it's just like like a fucking small little blemish on his face and he's wearing like a tiny little mask i'm like no make him look like a fucking inside out ghoul man Cowards. It's not a wonder that Peliquin hates him so fucking much because Peliquin used to be the hunkiest nightbreed. I would argue Peliquin is still pretty fucking hunky. He's got that good, like, he's got, like, the, the, the tendril head thing going yeah. on. He's got a cool shade of red. I like him. Yeah. And he looks pretty buff. Plus, he wears puffy parachute pants, so he's probably a super good dancer. Or a Millie Vanilli fan. <laughs> Considering the time frame. So he, he makes references. Like they he they make like pop culture references like y'all come back now you hear it's like we have TV down here too. That was something I wanted to ask you is what did you think of the one liners? I think every single character except maybe Lori has There is um there is a lot of dialogue as display in this film. So what I mean by that is it is these, these, uh, the effects, these creatures, how they were designed was very interesting. And Clive Barker obviously had a massive hand in this. But also, if you go back to the original story that this is based off of, they don't get into the massive descriptions about all the different Nightbreed because then your novella would just be a laundry list of like these, what the creatures look like. So the film, really had a a big job that seemed to be the mandate of anything goes any your team can make something cool and interesting and i'm sure that it would start in concept and you know clive barker would do like the old thumb up thumb down just like george lucas used to do with star wars it's like it was like they give him concepts and he's like yay nay and then they move on uh and it's like this character is now this guy um and I think that there's, particularly in the final battle scene, it's all like characters display and their, their dialogue, I feel contributes to that. Cause mm-hmm. it's like, do your power, say a cool thing. 
Yeah. That's that's what that's what this fucking movie is. I think that you know part of the reason why that battle sequence seems so long to me is because you have. Um, do you remember that movie, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, based off of uh, Alan Moore's? Yeah, yeah, comic? I do. With William H Macy. Yeah, so that film also had this issue in which every character would at some point have a gun shoved in their face and the bad guy would never fire it and there would be this weird exchange of dialogue only so the the character in the legal extraordinary gentleman can say a, a line like the one that always comes up to me is when they're fucking fighting captain nemo and 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 like the guy's like draw your pistol and he's like I carry no I follow a different path and then he like does martial arts on them and and, and I was do your power I, say a cool line yeah so the nightbreed people do this too and so they have like the y'all come back now here as weird pop culture references as well as there goes the neighborhood that's also like a, a very common pop culture phrase to let you know that as different as this world seems. The natural world has influences. They have access to it. They are not ignorant to the world around them, which means to say that they probably can see movies and they've watched television and they can, and they have picked up the local vernacular. That being said, it does stick out. Yeah, it definitely and, and, does. And it makes certain scenes just. It Stop. works entirely coming from Narcissi because he is funny and he's fr- he's new. He's a noob and he lived a whole life in the natural world. So it, it makes sense. And he is a joker. He just is for yeah. the get-go. So that fits. But everyone else, it just doesn't really. It's weird to me. And again, like the, the, when th- these constant scenes where people have loaded guns and they're just not firing. Mm-hmm. for I, I, I'm just like, do better. Yeah. do better somehow like i don't know like i feel like it would be a lot more natural to either have characters firing guns and then have and then if you want them to do one-liners do what arnold does after you kill them then you tough talk the body like <laughs> yeah which is made more effective i think in film anyway because uh if people pull guns they typically fire them yeah in real life and particularly these people who are there to slaughter like this idea where they're like have someone at gunpoint and they're just like having the people raise their hands i'm like they're not here to take hostages yeah exactly but everything is converging on this this thing and by the way there is like boone keeps leaving laurie by herself in this place which is wild to me because he's got to go see that final fantasy guy the final fantasy baphomet not baphomet nope no not this is not a satanist movie no, but and this guy looks like a fucking lava lamp. Like it's- he does look like a lava lamp. I think he looks pretty cool, and it's interesting to me that he is a living god. Yes, because he really definitely looks like a, a statue in disrepair up yeah. until the end. But uh, they go and worship, and what you would think, like because Christians do worship effigies, they worship idols of the Christ and God and the Trinity and mm-hmm. uh, reliquaries and saints and things. They don't actually worship the living gods or hosts or they you know talk about the transmutation of christ into wine and and bread and things like that but they don't have like a living god that they've ever worshipped and that is against the law uh, according to christians where this is the opposite where you would think that they're 
worshiping an effigy like we're all so used to seeing. But no, this is like a fucking corpse. He'll talk to you, though. He'll say some shit. Mm-hmm. Boone is going is both intrigued by this thing and terrified of it. He feels a purpose. He feels drawn to this. But the thing is that everything that happens to this place really has been, the ball has been set ever since they figured out that Boone wasn't dead. Or more specifically, Deckard figured out that Boone wasn't dead. And it's all about trying to find out what is in this place. And can they get the local authorities? Because... There's a lot of these nightbreed people there. So Deckard needs help. He has to go and talk to the cops who already hate anyone that talks about Midian. Because as soon as he talks about Midian, the police chief is all up in arms. Because he's like, oh great, you're another one of these nutcases talking crazy talk about monsters and Midian. This cop. This guy is weird. We've talked about it already, but I think that... This is the the contextlessness of this guy's character and why it's when Boone gets arrested and they get to the police station and they have this guy locked up and he's just sitting there. And this I'm assuming doctor checks this guy's pulse and there's no pulse. It is not wonder. It is not confusion. It is not. Disbelief. You know how sometimes in horror movies, it's always like cops just don't believe people. There's a rational explanation. This guy instantly believes that this guy is an undead thing and is angrier about it. You would think that Boone was fucking his wife. Which is crazy because he has spent the few minutes we've got to know this guy maintaining that there's no monsters in Midian and it is a myth and it is made up and it's crazy talk. To being angry because he must accept they exist if he hates them so fucking much. It's crazy to me. It's absolutely crazy. But I think at the time, too, where there was a lot of violence against gays. A lot of violence against gays. And we were coming out of some... We're still in, especially in the U.S., like a really volatile race problem, right? Mm -hmm. With racism. So at the time, it was sort of like on its way out. I, I I don't think anyone envisioned it turning into what it is turning into now. Um, I just watched a really fantastic documentary about the anger of like the alt right anger and Antifa versus the alt right is cra- It was crazy, but so I never thought in, in 1990 seeing us coming out of Rodney King and going into what we are now, I never fucking envisioned that. I really thought that all racism would just peter out, and I guess that's my rose-tinted glasses. Yeah. But we were coming off of this mudslide of horrific racism and, and lynchings and beatings, much like what happens to Boone in the cell, and having a ramping up, and, and a, a really fast and horrible ramping up of the same sort of violence and lynchings and beatings and killings against gays at, the, at that time. And it's very no, well known that Clyde Barker is a gay man and had come out not too long before that. Mm-hmm. And 
so it is like a real strange lens to have it through at this time where there is some racist that like you could look at it as this this is a story about racism with the monsters and like you were pointing out with the black cop having this uncle tom moment where he's backing off of the racial violence that mm-hmm. is perceived which maybe more so in the idea that it is a uh, anti-gay violence that's that's happening here i would accept that too that's yeah. that's that's also a valid interpretation of this too oh completely and this particular moment while we're having sort of in our minds like this is this reminds me a lot of the way uh, police officers would gay bash in smaller rural towns yeah for sure mm-hmm. it, it, what we can all agree on is that this is the, the a constant powerful image of white police officers standing over an unarmed defenseless person kicking and laughing and spouting out slurs yeah and and that's what they're doing it's it's a really good representation of that particular thing and then within almost the same breath the cop accuses the priest in the next cell that he has locked up and it's weird to me that these are obviously like drunk tanks in a local police station but they're padded like an asylum yeah so it's it's kind of like a serves all kind of police station i guess but they have those drunk crazy priest in the next cell and he calls him a faggot and it's just like oh okay i get i get what you're what you're doing here this is a horrible gay hating thing they 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 talk about hating the monsters because they're cannibalistic freaks i don't well if they're cannibalistic you just leave them alone they'll take care of themselves yeah if they're truly cannibal is that is that what you hate that is what you hate so much is that Mm -hmm. they're cannibals well they're not of you so they will cannibalize themselves yeah very much but that's not what he's saying he can barely articulate what he's saying he's just rage and anger so i guess that's sort of me explaining away his rage and anger that is explosive and unexplained Mm -hmm. (laughs) that comes up soon like his real explosive anger when he gets out to midian again and he's going to bring a posse. All the cops and all the rednecks. It's a lynching. Um, yeah. Plus, plus, plus. And they have, like, fully automatic weapons. They have rocket launchers. They have a flamethrower. They have tanks of gasoline. I understand, like, the militarization of police. But this is a small town. Why do they have an armory like this? They shouldn't have an armory like this. And then it... Then it begs explanation in that have they battled the Nightbreed before and they just kind of try and mm-hmm. pretend they didn't? I, or, I don't or is it supposed to be this or this commentary on local militia? Like where you just have private citizens that have armed themselves with what should be illegal weapons but aren't. Mm-hmm. Especially in, in like 1989, 1990. Like a lot of the stuff. Yeah, yeah. F- fucking AK-47. You can just buy that. It's all brought down not only because of the the police officer's hatred and the fact that Boone escapes again. Uh, Decker wants this to happen. He makes yet another call from a taxidermist. There's a taxidermist that lives near Midian. And we get a little bit of exposition, which is a really good thing in a lot of cases. I like movies where they're not spoon-feeding us lore. This comes away later in the film, so it's deserved and we're hungry for it by this point, especially watching the theatrical release where we're not told a lot. And some scenes like this may have served the theatrical version a little better, Mm. but it's not about spoon-feeding the audience. I get that. But this one is fun because he talks about Midian and the Nightbreed themselves and how there's so many different kinds. And Decker 
basically just kills him. It seems like the scene should have happened a half hour earlier in the film. Mm-hmm. Particularly since the next time you uh, you'll you'll find out later that uh, narcissist uh, he also told Deckard all about this. Yeah. In a scene we don't get, so it's weird to me. You don't need Deckard to get all this information from two different people or more information. I don't know. It's weird, but. Uh, it's just so that Decker can have a really cool I am death, simple as that sort of thing. That's true. Now, Narcissus will come in handy because he and um, Rachel and Lori are going to go rescue Boone whilst the police converge on this place. Um, This is where Rachel demonstrates her powers. They had spoken about some of the Nightbreed being able to fly, although we only really see one of the Nightbreed, which might actually be a Berserker. I'm, I'm not a- pretty sure that our little Manta Ray friend is a Berserker. Uh, yeah, the Berserkers, by the way, are as mutated and fucking dangerous as things get. They look like if you burnt the State, Parf- State Puff Marshmallow Man. Um, but, like, except for this, well, they do. What I always thought of an ogre. Uh, yeah, man. sure. Uh, that works, too. Um, but, like, Rachel in this can really make you think about how some of the Nightbreed could have been the source of a lot of legends and folklore because you have this woman appearing nude in the mist. It could be, and killing with a kiss. It could be anything from vampires to banshees to spirits, you know, anything like that. And Peliquin, given time, I'm sure he turns right into a wolf and she talks about some of them turning into wolves. So there are shapeshifters among them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it would definitely be the haunt of all of the tribes of all these monsters that we've Mm -hmm. passed down through folklore. Yeah, and that's where you have these cops getting a little keystoney. I mean, they're shooting themselves. They're it's hilarious. And and and, and again, the dialogue that is clunky to me is is just like this is a solid steel door they can't get through. And and I was like, this line is to set up that it's a it's like it's very cool that this per that this chick just went through this door because this cop is so confident that this door is so strong. It's like, you don't need that line. You can just have her going through the door. That'll impress enough people. Oh, completely. Like just show the big heavy door, lock it. It's, it's a, it's a door to a holding cell. So people will intuit that this is a strong door and she's gone through it. The line is just goofy. I it is. And but, and we've been waiting to see her power. We know her power of being an excellent mother. Yeah. That's and, so far all and, we got. And, and there's no real physical thing that we can pick out mm-hmm. that would be different about her that would make her seem like anything other than a normal human person. I mean, that other guy whose name always eludes me, Onaka apparently is his name, the tattooed nightbreed. What's his power? Burning in the sunlight. That's his fucking power. <laughs> Take that, guys. Being sad and having a dog, oh, I guess. So he's a, he's, that's his power. He's, he's a doggy daddy. He does. He's a doggy daddy. Um, When Boone gets rescued by Laurie and the gang, he, he like looks like he just wants to fuck. Like, he's very horny. They are making out, and this is um, like in the in the cell, uh, and this is where she's talking about how she'll never leave him, and she accepts him, and all that stuff. In between lickety kisses, like he's like licking her neck. I was like, this is not the time for this. He was also made by Peliquin, where I maintain that he is the most sexually overt uh, nightbreed. He really is, mm-hmm. uh, even though he keeps it under wraps. He'd rather like eat somebody, I think, 
he's a little bit more chaste than that, but he talks like he's very uh, sensual. He's a very sensual creature, I think. Like Millie Vanilli. And, <laughs> or Millie or Vanilli, whichever one. The one that didn't die, I guess. <laughs> I don't know which one is still alive. <laughs> one of them, I think. I don't know. But either way, uh, he was created from that. So, of course, he's going to have his extra sexiness. And he wore a leather jacket before. And he was hunky, as you say. So, I think he's, like, hunky plus now. Because he's got peliquin blood in him. I like... I like that the second Boone comes back as a nightbreed. He's like, my look is no shirt, leather jacket, bullet hole still in a leather jacket... And this is me. I'm the Nightbreed guy. Although he will change to a very tight white t-shirt that he won't seem to ever care that it gets damaged a lot. Because he basically, his, he gets all the best powers. He seems to be basically immortal and not impervious to harm, but he regenerates incredibly quickly. And also he's stronger than a normal human. And even when he beasts out, he's still kind of hot. Yeah. So he gets some some cool sigils on his face. Basically, yeah. And that's all. And he's mm-hmm. like, he fucking lucked out. This is best case scenario. There's Which like, makes you think that he, Lylesberg probably created Peliquin. And Peliquin is Boone's dad. Because he kind of gets the same, not quite gills like mm-hmm. Lylesberg has. Mm-hmm. Who's played by our friend Doug, Bla- Doug Bradley. So if you want to talk about sexy Cenobites and sexy Nightbreed, Lylesberg isn't so sexy. He's kind of old and decrepit. And I think they call him what, Merlin or something. The yeah. cops call him Merlin. Yeah, he looks joke. he looks like that high priest guy in the end of Heavy Metal. Yeah, and that that sequence where like the chick with the white hair is killing flying on a pterodactyl. But um, they uh, <laughs> we just watched it not too long ago. So it's- oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. Sweet, I love that movie. Um, did Chris like it? Yes. Good. Yes. All right. Uh, sorry. And we watched the Love, Death, and Robots because uh, that's like the third installation in a way. It's like the the I don't know the the progeny mm-hmm. of the heavy metal idea. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. I like this fascinating stuff. Uh, I highly recommend that. It's on Netflix. If anyone hasn't watched Love, Death, and Robots, it's, it's mm-hmm. really fantastic. Uh, trippy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. So as all of these rednecks and stuff get in there, they basically choose the worst possible time because they are talking about how the sun is their ally and blah, 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 blah. They come there at the fucking break of, of like, uh, evening. Yeah, it's basically like, the golden hour. <laughs> yeah, so, like, they're there and it's daylight. I'm like, well, this makes sense. They're going to, they have the advantage. They'll just burn civilization and anyone that get flushed out will be killed by the sun. No, it's going to, the sun is going to set fucking instantaneously. And they don't seem to understand that not all breed die the same. Yeah. They didn't have that conversation with the taxidermist. They didn't. And Deckard is there. And, and again, he's like, Deckard is like, no one notices. He's putting on his fucking mask. He's got his crazy steak knives. He is just going to, he is going to start killing. He kills that one police officer. For seemingly no reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, well, I mean, he kills everyone for no reason. But, um, and now it's war. War with explosions. Lots of explosions. And lots grenade of grenade launchers. Grenade launchers. You have, like, just people hooting and hollering and laughing. You have the porcupine lady showing everyone her boobs. Like, don't you want to fuck me? And showing everyone their powers. They're yeah, basically showing everyone their powers. It's great. That's what it is, and- yeah. Uh, Decker has a machete, which is very slasher killer. 
I yeah. see why the studio and one of the, the the strikes against the studio was apparently they didn't understand. They didn't read the source material. They didn't understand or have any appreciation for the source material whatsoever. They looked at Decker and was like, this guy is our slasher killer. And then they probably fell asleep by, while watching it and <laughs> decided what to edit, right? In that way. Mm. Based really, I think, on the strength of Decker in this scene. If you take him out of context entirely, he looks like a slasher serial killer. Very cool one, though. Very, very cool one. I love I love uh, Decker. He's a really cool character. Um, when you basically are having the night breed it's hard to say really there's a lot of times when i'm watching this film sorry to like distract myself with my own sentence but what i mean is what i'm trying to get at is it's hard to really say who is better or worse off a lot of the night breed get fucking killed yeah uh, but at the same time the night breed do fight back and even releasing the berserkers, the, the ooey-gooey berserker-type characters. Which is totally Boone's idea, and I totally am behind him 100%. Oh, yeah. What use are they? And at the, you know, if things are going the way that they're going, they're going to get burnt alive down there. And that's just cruel. Yeah. Um, but everyone at first is really mad at Boone because it's all his fault that they're losing their home. And what are they going to do now? Mm-hmm. And then Palaquin, scene missing, reverse, fast forward. There was a prophecy. It's all in the prophecy. <laughs> there was a prophecy the whole time. He shows Laurie the prophecy. It's not just that he knows the prophecy or it's part of the law. It's painted on the fucking wall. And there's a picture of him biting Boone. Like he didn't know this was going to happen. Yeah. I love it, though. I do I do love this lore. Uh, he didn't understand that he would be their savior, that he was going to be their destroyer. Um, Baphomet explains it away with the fact that it was in- inevitable. You can't live in one place forever. And they would have had to eventually move anyway. So now it's up to Boone slash Cabal, that's his new name, to find them a new home. Yeah. And protect Baphomet from his enemies. Meanwhile, the last the last two things that I want to talk about is this priest character who becomes a nightbreed, I guess, technically. This reminds me of the Doctor as a Cenobite. Yeah, becomes a, a weird zealot or whatever. He definitely does not... He starts to see the evil of the humans and he tries to take off the police... Take out the police officers mm-hmm. because they're just... These are children. These you're are, killing children. You're killing children. So he pulls a gun. Very just... Justin Wise action. And then Deckard gets his climactic battle with Boone. It doesn't seem all that serious because Boone can't really be killed by at least any normal means that I understand. No, and it gets kind of slapsticky. Yeah. Uh, and not unlike Jason versus Freddy. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. like, I mean, Boone even has like a fucking playing card like stuck to his chest. Even after the blade gets stuck, like pulled out, he still just has like a playing card. It's like, just give that a little. A little slap. Which is funny. I think Yeah, it's it's pretty funny. Deckard is killed. It's pretty unceremonious. Um, And then the Nightbreed basically fight back. And whomever remains, they can't stay in their home any longer. It's gone. Uh, But don't worry, because there's going to be a fucking really cool... Like, I totally admit, I love this scene. It's the resurrection of Deckard. As, like, you know, the priest puts his hands in that fucking primordial goo, shoves it into his gaping chest, and you and you instantly see all the sequels that never were to be. 
with this film. I'm just looking up the Ace of Pentacles, which would basically be the Ace of Diamonds, which was the card that was stuck to Boone's chest. Mm -hmm. And the Ace of Pentacles shows a divine hand emerging from a fluffy cloud, holding a beautiful shiny pentacle over a lush garden with white flowers and shrubs. So he is their savior, as read by the tarot card, or normal playing card, because they are tarot and gypsy lore. Um, So yeah... Some tarot interpreters say that garden pictured in Ace of Pentacles is the Garden of Eden. Mm, So perhaps he will lead them to the Garden of Eden. This Garden of Eden without snakes, apple trees, and deceit is pure, immaculate, and untouched. So it's uh, Garden of Eden 2.0. That's what that card means if you want to get real silly about it. And you know we do. I, I, I always do. And it's Clyde Barker we're talking about, so there are deeper meanings in everything. Of course. And, and, you know, this movie has its problems. I don't think they're Barker's uh, problems per se. I think that this film was far too ambitious and not understood by the studios. And when you have that much money involved, there's just no way that they're going to keep their hands out of it. And unfortunately, they overcooked it. And that's what we had to deal with for years. And so this film becoming a cult hit, it's nice. I'm glad that people enjoy it. And and I'm definitely more of a fan of the director's cut than I am of this. Although I also don't put it in all that often because it's a long fucking movie. And it's a lot easier, though, once you've seen that and appreciate it and know it, you can watch the theatrical version mm-hmm. and know scene missing, scene missing, it's right? Crib, and you can fill it in. Yeah. Basically. That's basically what the theatrical cut is. Yeah. So we watched the, the Cole's Notes version of Nightbreed today. <laughs> what, but it's only valuable once you know all of the source material. Yeah. So... That also is going to be a strike against it because I'm all about films being like their own standalone thing. Like you should be able to glean everything you need from this original runtime. And I'm, that's not Barker's fault. I'm not blaming him. Oh, my, no, exactly. My, my and blame. like the, the only solution at the time would have been release it in two films. If you think it's too long, if that's your big complaint. Yeah. It's not all over the place. It's not a, a mess when you have all of these scenes together. Mm-hmm. But, the story narratively makes more sense. Scene missing. Scene missing. <laughs> what do we got next for him? Coming up next, I forget. I'm going to have to look at my little list because I'm a loser and That's haven't okay. been paying attention. When I ask you these questions, it's because I genuinely don't ever remember. Yeah, I know. Coming up next, we have Lord of Illusions. Yes, a Clive Barker film that I am more familiar with. More familiar with, yes. And it is a fantastic film. I haven't seen that in a long fucking time. Me either. This is going to be uh, since I was, since whenever it came out and it would have started making the rotations on the movie network. I think, or I think we rented it. But whenever, so that was the last time I've seen it. So, but I remember really liking it when I was a kid. So we'll see. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to it. Scene missing. I watched this. I watched this movie for for the first. Or I watched Lord of the Illusions uh, with my brother and my then at the time brother's best friend Arthur, and his biggest complaint was the guy who was a magician who knew real magic never used real magic 
to protect himself until there was one scene and I've never seen a person more satisfied in my entire life when the magician, if memory serves me, does a pretty lame spell and just breathes fire uh, on a table and that goes outwards to people that are attacking him. But it was a moment of pure elation watching this guy immolate somebody. So elation via immolation. Finally using his real magic. <laughs> I found it incredibly tiresome when I first watched it, but I was maybe too young. It might be. I mean, I know that there's, uh, it ramps up towards the end, but I think there's a, the midway point is a lot of running from locations and finding stuff. And I can't yeah. really remember. It took me till I was about 25 before I watched it again and was like, why did I ever not like this? I love this movie. It's great. But yeah. Ridiculous kid. I was a ridiculous kid. That's okay. You are a fantastic adult. Well, thank you. I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Idiot. And you've been listening to Dead Air. Scene missing.